0: Now. What's up, everybody? Thank you all for joining me on the latest Mortcast part of the CSG Network. Before I get started, I'd like to talk to you about Blanchard Family Wines, located between 18th and 19th in Blinkenwazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coorsfield, right in the middle of the Dairy Block. Uh, I don't know if anyone saw this, but right in the middle of the Dairy Block, they had, I'm just actually going the length of the Dairy Block, they had a nice event uh, uh, of a Food tasting, just, it's a nice event for everyone and pairing with wine. Uh, obviously, as a snob, I like that sort of thing. And even if you're not a snob, you're going to enjoy it. <laughs> uh, they got uh, whites, they got reds, they got pinot, they got cab, they got... Anything you would want from their own vineyards in Sonoma County, California, they have a partnership with uh, storm cellars, which is a Western slope winery. I highly suggest you go in. Once again, they are located between 18th and 19th and Blake and Wazee in beautiful lower downtown Denver, Colorado, just a couple blocks away from Coorsfield, right in the middle of the dairy block. They are on Facebook and Instagram under Blanchard family wines. You can find them online at bfwdenver.com. And when you go in, Tell them Jeff Morton from CSG Podcast sent you there. Additionally, I would like to tell you about my friend Andy Feinstein. Uh, he has Exto Events Center up and ready for you to uh, go in and have an event in there uh, in a safe, socially uh, d- distanced way. Uh, please support our friends at Exto Event Center located in Denver's vibrant Arinao Arts District. Exto uh, Event Center can host a safe, socially distanced event for up to uh, 25 and 175 persons outdoors and up to 100 persons indoors. If you are interested in hosting an event or for a corporate gathering, fundraiser, client appreciation, birthday or anniversary party or just general morale-boosting uh, happy hour, which let's face it, we all need, exto uh, would welcome the opportunity to be part of it. Please visit ExtoEvents.com for more information and book your private event today. Okay, all that out of the way. We have got my friend... Uh, someone who has not been on z s g since i think two thousand and fifteen uh my friend oh wow. Marez. uh i i should probably put uh, point out that you are what is your official title at d n b r uh i don't know like uh, all
1: star i think all star <laughs> <our> five time all star <laughs> at uh, DNBR.
0: um <laughs> you you are <laughs> mr Every- right, uh i like i haven't never been on the Mortcast. cast Oh, that's right. You've never been on the Mortcast. This is true. Yeah. As we are part of the CSG network. Um, The Mortcast (laughs) makes it sound like death. Mort. (laughs) Le Mort. This is true. This is true. And I'm sure there's a bunch of very uh, confused French people out there. But um, we we kind of want to, I mean, I wanted to have Adam on because I finally got used to technology and uh, I can actually operate Zoom. So uh, now for the first time in a long time, we can have, I can have Adam on here just to get his take <laughs> on the nuggets. Uh, obviously uh, he's a man of all media and uh, he is used to this sort of thing. He's run, uh, is a co-host, I should say, of Locked On Nuggets and uh, does a lot of different things at DNBR. Mm-hmm. You'll find him in a lot of different places and on Twitter at Adam Mata. It used to be uh, Icarus Adam back in the, back in the day. So, uh, back in the day man way back in the day <laughs> um all right it's been an interesting time the last three days uh is there if you were going to give a 10,000 foot view and I know that's really hard to do uh right now but if you're going to give a 10,000 foot view of what's been going on the last three days in the uh, NBA what would how would you sum it up
1: wow <laughs> It's hard enough to talk about this at length, but in a summary form, I think is as near impossible. I would say, you know, players have been uncomfortable being inside the bubble when they feel like what they're doing and participating in this bubble might be a distraction to the social movement that's going on in the country. And I think with the Jake, Jacob Blake murder, now that uh, – or not murder, I'm sorry, but the shooting, the Jacob Blake shooting, I think the players were like – wanted to make a stand, wanted to make a state. But if you pull back even further, I would say what's happening is the players have realized just how much they can leverage their power against the owners. And this strike, I think, is a turning point for owners and just the NBA as an entity um, realizing, hey, we have even less control over our own product than maybe we thought. And the players now – I think going forward are going to realize that collectively when they work together for moments like this, they could really put a lot of pressure on owners in particular to sort of align their values with theirs.
0: That's an excellent summary. That better than I could have done on that. And I think that in more than anything else, uh, it, it was a pivotal moment in just general sports history. You, you kind of have these crux moments yeah. where there's a p- players realize how powerful they are. Uh, 19, in the 60s, the late 60s, that was happening a lot. Um, and it's happening now. And uh, it's, uh, for me, it's, it's, it's heartening to see. And I appreciate the, that, them, that the players are using their leverage to do this and uh, understanding their leverage. And I think more than anything else, uh, from my perspective, Adam, is that it's, there's been a an awakening to the knowledge that they have the power. And I think this not only applies to the NBA, but it applies to uh, Major League Baseball, the NFL, all the other professional sports, understanding that the players have more power than they think they do. Yeah, and, and
1: that opens up a whole new era. I think in the next decade of professional sports will be different because of it. So we'll see. I think in ways largely positive, but as with any sort of shifting of power, there's always Ripple effects, unintended consequences, challenges and obstacles ahead. And I think that's what's going to be interesting about this. How do the players utilize this newfound pressure? I think what you saw today with the, the owners agreeing to turn their arenas into voting facilities, and you know, that's real tangible change. There's some things like that. But I do wonder about going forward, just how it's going to evolve and how the players will continue to use that leverage against the owners.
0: Well, and it's and it's a reflection of a lot of different things, and it's a lot, a reflection of continued frustration about where the players have been, particularly African American players, and uh, I think their understanding of what they can do as as a collective is is uh, to me did nothing but good. I know there's a lot of people who disagree with that stance, but to me, it's a uh, it's a good kind of knowledge to have, and um, it is it is something that I hope that people use to their advantage in a good way, like it was done now. Um, Moving forward though, there was some crux moments that happened in the aftermath of really what would amounted to the bucks uh, starting this whole uh, uh, event that uh, led to to what happened today. Um, And there's been a lot of extensive reporting, a lot of it contradictory about what has been going on um, in these meetings. And uh, one of the things that has been semi consistent is that a lot of the play and it was reported by Stephen A. Smith today, and I and I know I kind of just dropped this on you before we did the uh, podcast, but uh, according to Stephen A. Smith, a lot of the younger players did not like the way that LeBron was approaching them. Although I didn't like the way that he was speaking to him, and I think that may be a reflection of maybe a subtle, not all the way, but a subtle power shift in the dynamic of the way. NBA players deal with even each other right now.
1: Yeah, I, so this is what I mean when I say unintended consequences and just how this thing evolves going forward. LeBron James 10 years ago helped lead in a new era of what we call player empowerment, right? He left Cleveland. He kind of leveraged his free agency to get exactly what he wanted in Miami, the exact players and everything else. So we call this era player empowerment. But if we step back, you know, Lonzo Ball didn't have player empowerment. Brandon Ingram didn't have player empowerment. Those guys, 10 years later, became pawns in LeBron's scheme. Yeah. So when you, people talk about, you know, player empowerment, players having the ability to go where they want to, this is a good thing. I don't know that it's necessarily the case. I think superstar empowerment is probably more accurate of yeah. what we've seen. So yeah. 10 years later, when we get into this issue and you look at, okay, who are the leaders of your Chris Paul, LeBron James, I think a lot of younger players look at it and say, hey... In the last lockout, you guys, or in the last CBA negotiations, you guys created this complex rule that has crippled teams that benefited you. You created the supermax that, hey, look, me, Joe, Joe Schmo, the, uh, the, average, the average NBA player, the role player, I didn't get to benefit from the things you lobbied that basically for yourself. And not only that, do we all always have to get in line between, behind LeBron. We know this. There's a generational shift going on. LeBron has been the face of the NBA for a long time. He still is, but it's changing. And I think we're seeing that both in front and behind scenes.
0: One of the better uh, kind of revelations that I've seen, Adam, has been the uh, uniting of the Balkan nations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's cool. We're, it is, isn't it? I, Because I, you, you hear these things from – and and the loudest people tend to be the most the people who are uh, more radicalized. But uh, you hear these things about how they are all out at each other's throats, and then you see great pictures about people just having a nice dinner. And yeah. it, I and I don't know about you, but it kind of gave me the you know the, the kind of ah warm fuzzies kind of feel. You know, it
1: did. It, it is funny, but it did for me too. And I just imagine these guys, you know, Vucevic and Jokic and. Dragic and Nurkic, I mean, imagine all these guys being in this moment in time. Do they care about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement? I think absolutely they care about equality. I mean, whatever statements they've made. Yeah. But asking them to understand complex social norms or complex social issues in America, they don't understand the history. Likely, I'm not, I mean, I'm, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm saying it's probably unfair to expect them to understand all of the different layers to this for an American. So I picture them inside this bubble. I picture this very stressful moment in time for a lot of people and then them having this opportunity with themselves to say hey let's get together we're all kind of in a similar space here and let's get together and i just i think it's kind of cool it's it in many ways almost feels counter to what we're seeing elsewhere where you're seeing people that as recently as 25 years ago had a enormous conflict and now we're getting people from all those nations to kind of get together and hanging out and, and Again, this can easily be overstated. I'm sure our Serbian followers might say, well, actually to us, but as far as a photo op goes, it was, it was, I think a cool thing to see.
0: It was. And, uh, and, and quite frankly, uh, I people have put a lot of issues between Nurkic and Jokic that weren't there. And I think that that was a good to see for me personally. And more than that, it's just, it's nice to see some unity there. Um, and I think, in general, the yep. players are united in the bubble. I think from what I heard, and this is something that uh, that has been give, tell, told to me by a couple of people who have came come in and out of the bubble is that the bubble is a weird place, and it is hard to adequately convey the the isolation and yet the not isolation of the place, uh, almost like I would equate it to a high class uh, isolation camp you know it's just yeah yeah it's really they're cut off from everyone and it's people are having a hard time getting used to that and i don't think we as people who are covered the league uh give that enough credence because it is it is i mean i try to put myself in that position it's got to be really weird to just go and try to play basketball in that sort of situation T- tensions have to be high i mean like as you mentioned they're just restricted in what
1: they can and can't do they're not around the people they're used to being around. Now they're around each other. You can imagine following game three, the Nuggets go down two games to one. They get blown out in humiliating fashion. Well, where do you go? All you can go back to is your hotel room or around your teammates who you probably wanted to get away from. So yep. I think there's an enormous amount of tension, both just from the um, the playoffs being going the way that they are, but also from being inside there. I think we're on 57 days now inside the bubble for most teams. So um, you add all of that plus the social unrest and just feeling like, are we even supposed to be here is what we're doing productive in the grand scheme of things. I going into this bubble, you know, people talk about asterisk. I still think, you know, a team's going to win this and they're going to earn whatever it is that they win. But I think you, I think now being into this thing for two months, you look at it and you go, wow, the emotional toll this is taking on players is really the greatest variable of anything inside of this bubble.
0: Yeah. And it is probably contributing to a lot of what's going on right now. Um, I, I would be personally, just from my perspective, I would be emotionally frayed because I know I was in the first couple of months of COVID. I, by the late yeah. April, I was getting real buggy. And I think you got to imagine these guys are kind of like that, you know, it's a different situation. You're getting foods, getting catered, all of Tillman Fertitta's restaurants are catering you right now. So you're like, okay, I got let's nice not forget nice food. That these
1: guys, yeah. Let's not forget that these guys also were, you know, social distancing and sheltering mm-hmm. in place, just like the rest of us. So it's yeah. not like they're coming off of these great vacations and going right into it. I mean, For one sure. of the reasons I think Jokic went to Serbia and then ended up getting COVID, but he went to Serbia in the first place is that I think the team was like, This guy has been here for now nine months, more longer than usual. He's been by himself. He doesn't have his family. You know, he doesn't have all the comforts. Let's let him get one vacation before we lock him inside of a bubble for two plus months again. And so I think that was the thinking and the rationale there. And I mean, for a guy like Vlatko, a guy like Jokic, these guys are going on a really long period of time where they haven't had their normal sort of people around them that just people can say, oh, they're in a resort. They're in this or that. They don't get to see your family for this long. That's rough. That's tough for anybody.
0: It is. It is. And I, I'm just putting myself in that situation. I don't know how I would react personally. And, uh, you know, kind of moving into where the Nuggets are right now, you know, their bubble experience has been a lot weirder than a lot of other people. I mean, they had the, the team was coming in piecemeal. Uh, yeah. they're, they're just it, – it's an odd situation. They got two guys who I uh, came in probably injured and then just didn't – improve while, right. while they were in the bubble and uh one specifically had to leave so what when you look at it and from and before we get into the weeds uh just looking at the nuggets own personal bubble experience i do have some empathy to what they've had to go through specifically just having just uh, i would describe it as uh almost chaotic experience of having guys come in like that. I mean, can can you look at it that way and say, like, I I have a little bit of the – you have a little bit of that kind of empathy as well? I mean, for sure, man. But
1: empathy might not be the right word. I I actually think – and I wonder what you think about this. But, you know, I almost question a little bit the team's maturity, leadership, and readiness when they did not arrive in the bubble together. I think you look around the league and you see some of the teams that maybe have more the most organizationally impressive ones, the Toronto Raptors, for example, they arrived everybody on pace, everybody seemed to be like okay we 're getting ready, we need to be extra careful now because we 're going to Orlando in a couple of weeks. nobody catch this, whatever, And when the Denver Nuggets have more than half of their team have to arrive late, and then some guys with injuries and this or that, I just look at that and I go, Why you knew this was coming, and look i can 't hold it against anybody this years so weird, but I do look at it and go, that was one challenge, arriving to the, in the bubble as one team." Was a challenge that some teams seemed to be up for, and other teams weren't. And Denver was as not up for it as anybody, it seems.
0: Well, look at the way they were playing pre-COVID. They yeah. were playing disinterested.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, they were. Uh, Jokic had gone another, through another malaise.
1: A little malaise, yep. Yeah.
0: And it was they were not exactly a together team by the time the weird night in Dallas happened, and. Yeah. Now they get come into a bubble situation where, you know, they weren't exactly right and high uh, guys go on to do their own thing, which uh, it is what it is. Uh, but, and then they come in piecemeal. Uh, it is, it is is. You're right in a sense where I think it's kind of indicative to where they are as a team and where they have been all year. I don't, I don't think last year's nuggets have this issue. I think this this is very specific to mm-hmm. this that's year's interesting because I think Man,
1: that's really interesting, Jeff.
0: Because look at it, I, don't, I don't I don't know. Look at it this way. This team seemed less together this year than they did last year. Uh, then I think that was one of my and then they, they, I'm speaking for Jeff. Um, one of my factors in this year, like why I couldn't necess- I wasn't responding to this team, was they just looked. Not together. They didn't look together. They didn't look like uh, they were having, I'm not, they weren't having any fun. Like it didn't run its course maybe? Yeah, they weren't having any fun. Not in a, a we hate each other way. It was in a, we're just not having fun. Yeah. This is not fun anymore. And I think I, I sensed that and by the, by the time we get to March, it was really hitting. And then this break comes. And I think what we've seen in the bubble since is just an extension of that. I don't think this Nuggets team is a victim of anything other than their personalities right now. And I think that that is, is part and parcel to what's going on, uh, even though they're in a 2-3 series hold. So hindsight's always twenty-twenty, And this is easy
1: for me to sort of critique Malone in this way now, having seen how the season play, played out, including a pandemic hitting. But I do wonder if Malone coaches October, November, December the wrong way. And what I mean by that is, look, Jokic was worn out early in the season. He clearly looked mentally like he just didn't want to be there. Michael Porter Jr. is not even in the rotation. I think you look at those months and say, man, were those games important? Denver was off to a great start, if you remember. The record was great, as it always is, even despite Jokic not playing well. Yeah. Um, And so then you get to – January, February, March, and you don't have some of those lessons I think you needed to learn back then you get inside the bubble and you go you especially don't have those Michael Porter Junior seems to have no idea where he's supposed to be on the court. Yep. Um, so I wonder if Malone, if he could have this season over again, if he would have started the process a little bit early for for saying, hey, October, November, no- December doesn't matter. We can afford defensive lapses. We just need to bring everybody up to speed. And maybe even in doing so, that injects a little bit of life into the, the team earlier in the season. And it's like, okay, something's a little different this year, and it's different in a way that's tough but also fun.
0: Well, yeah. I, uh, remember that farce of a uh, small forward competition that they had in uh, – yeah, That's right, <laughs> okay. yeah uh that to me told me everything i needed to know every everyone knew everyone on the planet knew will barton was going to be the starter right right but it was like it was they were going through the motions in it and what what bugged me at that was like why are you why are you doing this you're not proving anything you're you're not proving anything just tell will barton he's the uh starter and go from there and that, to me, set the kind of the year on a weird thing because Porter was not getting any minutes. And look, it's not just him, right? And I think we tend to focus on Michael Porter Jr. But it's, it's more than him. It's more it, it's more of a, uh, this year was wrong. Everything, they were winning just because they could. They were, they've been together. Uh, and I think a lot of that can, that we know each other kind of thing was helping them. But I think even people on the team were like, we need to get this guy some minutes. Even Will Barton was saying that, actually. Will Barton was saying that publicly. We need to get him some minutes. I think that kind of was pulling at the team a little. They knew that they had this guy there, but they knew that he had some issues. And that kind of, like, it was part of the stew of this year leading into the bubble. Yeah. You know? Man, I think
1: that's interesting. They played like the 2019 Warriors without having the accomplishments of the Warriors. What I mean by that is <laughs> you want to, like, learn who you are and overcome things along the way to win games. And Denver didn't seem to be doing that. They would almost yes. play the wrong way and then win anyway because they were just yeah. so good down the stretch. And it was like, yeah, you need, you need all of those exercises in October, November, December. You need, those, you, you need to actually be building towards something, not just winning because you can. Otherwise, when it does, when you can't just no longer just eke out wins, you're going you're gonna to
0: fall flat. Absolutely. Okay, we're going to take our first break. And by that break, by break, I mean I'm going to read. Um, <laughs> I'd like to talk to you about DraftKings, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Um, it's Jeff Morton here telling you about the 100 million reasons why you should s- listen up. DraftKings, the leader in one-day uh, one fantasy sports, is celebrating the return of sports by giving away up to $100 million in prizes to all the customers, including one lucky winner who will take home a $1 million cash prize. To claim your share of up to 1 million in, in, $100 million in instant giveaways, I'm slaughtering this, uh, <laughs> all you have to do is download the app and sign up using the promo code MHS. Then enter DraftKings free football survivor pool uh, download the DraftKings sportsbook app now and use the promo code MHS when you to claim your share of 100 million dollars in instant giveaways and put yourself in the running of, for the 1 million dollar top cash prize the promo code is MHS to get your share of 100 million dollars in prizes only at DraftKings must be 21 or older Colorado only uh, other terms and conditions and restrictions apply see draftkings.com/sportsbook for details gambling problem call 1-800-522-4700 um, adam I, I you know this is this is why advertisement works uh i'm obsessed with uh trying out keto friendly uh built bars <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're good huh yeah okay. i just like okay. very chewy very chewy <laughs> I, look i i i have when you're on a low carb diet, it is like you have nothing you have it it's yeah. like a really limited diet, so you you pray for something else to come down um, so actually, that bleeds me into my next kind of little foray into nuggets nuggets bill, and i think. My, you know, my kind of jaded opinion of this team was I didn't connect with them. Uh, this particular team, this year, last year was much better. Um, that lack of connectivity I had with this team kind of uh, was influencing my reactions to games two and three, which I would say were of of not necessarily uh, level-minded <laughs> <laughs> you you were you were on the receiving end of some texts for me, which I <laughs> I, was, I like I I just didn't understand. When you see games two and three, what's going through your mind? I mean, just like, are you done? Yeah, man. I mean, so
1: game two I thought was discouraging. You know, Utah hit an enormous amount of shots. They were collapsing the defense, and I'm thinking, okay. If this is a one-off, it happens in series sometimes. Denver has counters to make. They can change things up. Starting lineup's not working. They should have lost both games, one and two. So here come the adjustments. When game three didn't – there weren't any adjustments. Game three was about playing harder. I knew before the game tipped off, I said, this is going to get ugly. And I – Thought that just meant that the Utah Jazz were going to run them off the court, but not that Denver was going to sort of respond. That they do it, they did, and in particular Jokic. So watching Game Three, I thought, "Wow, this feels like the tipping point for this Denver Nuggets team." Malone not making adjustments and reading the series the way I thought it was very clear to that point, and Jokic just not being willing to kind of overcome that, which would have been hard for him to overcome anyway. But he just seemed like he would. Like well, if this is what we're doing, I'm just going to get dunked on by Rudy Gobert if I try. So I'm just going to kind of make, a, you know, why bust my hump just to be the one getting dunked on? I felt like that's what was happening in that game, and it was discouraging on every single
0: level. Yes, and will you pointed out just something that I was? It's like you read my mind. In game three, I saw Jokic not quit. I think he was frustrated to the point of, yeah, of I don't know what to, because it looked like to me they put Jokic in a horrible position and then asked him asked him to grin and bear it repeatedly, yeah, and I think that reflected in his play, particularly in the second and third quarter, and he seemed to be done with it, and obviously people focus on the the result and not the why and i get it because we don't we can't read people's minds but my perception was that he was just i'm you are humiliating me and it was a it was a team wide thing and then it it just didn't seem to it it, like it it went downhill from there basically
1: and i put this on to me it felt like the culmination of the Malone Jokic relationship which is a a couple different there's a couple different facets to it one of those facets is that michael malone is a strong leader he's a very loud vocal not afraid to call people out whatever Jokic has not grown into a leader i don't think so far in his nba career he's gotten a little bit better at it yeah i wonder how much those two things play a part in each other i wonder how much like Jokic needs to be better at confronting Michael Malone and saying hey this is what we need to do because I think Michael Malone would be open to it just Malone doesn't Jokic just doesn't seem to for whatever reason fill that, that responsibility to go to him and say hey dude why are we starting Michael Porter Jr. Torrey Craig Paul Millsap around me when we don't know how to use Michael Porter Jr. yet as a team and defensively he just puts me in a position to get dunked on over and over again so we're getting the worst of both worlds right now he doesn't seem to have it in him to go to the coaching staff and say that. And at the same time, Michael Malone naturally doesn't seem to understand Jokic in terms of what does he want? What makes him tick? How do I lean into my best player? Do I have the creativity to say, hey, my best player is not great defensively, but man, is he unique? And then build from there. I don't know that Malone has that. He's so principled. He's so traditional. And I think every in every way that he has broke. From that tradition and those principles has been a dogfight. And I think it came to a head in game three when it was three games in, the Nuggets were clearly being outplayed and they didn't make any adjustments or change anything. I think that was, wow, this guy doesn't have it in him to be creative enough to get the most out of this player, at least in that moment. Since then, they've adjusted a little bit. But in that moment, it sure felt like a coming to a head moment.
0: Well, I think, I don't want to speak for you, but I think I. I, Responded poorly to the uh, they need to execute before I do any adjustments. Uh,
1: comment man, pre-game.
0: man, and that's a bad I, that, no matter how you slice it, that's a bad quote. It's a bad quote, and it didn't reflect well on him. It was it, it reflected stubbornness, and which is 100% which, um, we have all known as an attribute of Michael Malone. That being said, he made the right adjustment for game four. Um, I was, a, I was. Deathly afraid Tory Craig was still going to be in the uh, starting lineup and that they would embrace a style that they can't necessarily execute. Uh, but they put in Monty uh, Morris and Jeremy Grant. We'll discuss one other person in this lineup who's still an issue uh, a little bit later. But that lineup in game four, even though they didn't win, seemed to be the right kind of chemical mix. To get yeah. this team kind of going
1: but again why did that lineup work in my opinion it was because they they knew who they were that lineup not because it was better right just because like okay well i know what jeremy grant does i know what monte morris does he knows when he's supposed to shoot when he's not to everybody kind of knows their role in that lineup but again yeah. so why didn't michael porter work i think in large part because this idea that he was going to arrive in the bubble as somebody not even in the rotation and then become one of the most important pieces it turned out that was always a bit of a farce and so I, to me the, the failures go way back all the way to how the season was handled and then hoping it would happen but you just said I give him a loan credit for game four that's tough for me oh, because really? the series is about adjustments and anybody that watched game one let alone games one and two knew that Denver was struggling with that starting lineup so going to it in game three again You don't. To me, I don't give you a pass, just like I don't give Jokic a pass and say, well, game four, he tried. Yeah, but game three, he didn't. Game four, Michael Malone made the adjustment. Yeah, but game three, he didn't. And it might be the single reason why Denver doesn't advance to the second round of this series, because you can't make adjustments too late. Game four was a coin flip game that just came up tails for Denver. Um, And, you know, yes, he made the right adjustment at that point, but you already had forfeited your position in the series. And once you go down 3-1, things are just so tough.
0: Well, and I, that brings me to, uh, that one part of the lineup where, who is, um, Paul Millsap, uh, this has not been a great bubble experience for him. Mm. And I don't want to be definitive and say that he suddenly got old, but he suddenly got old. He, <laughs> he, he looks Jeff, to me.
1: You're the, if anyone can talk <laughs> about somebody getting old quickly, it's, it's you.
0: Yes. This yes. is your corner. Yes because uh, I, I, I own old, and I, uh, <laughs> I, I look at him, and I think it happens, and it happens with NBA players. I will never forget uh, 2008. Allen Iverson, those first three games with the Denver Nuggets before he was traded looked awful. He looked like he had lost yeah. not only a step, he'd lost two steps, and it was like, oh, my God. Then the Nuggets managed to trade him. That's one of the reasons that trade is so remarkable. They managed to trade him before everyone saw how much uh, uh, Iverson had declined. And then once Iverson goes to Detroit, he's a mess, a complete mess. He can't play anymore, basically. And I'm looking at Paul Millsap. He's and out and the I'm league thinking, almost immediately after yeah, that. And I'm looking at Paul Millsap thinking, oh, my God, he, he, he is slow. He's on offense. He's bogging things down. It is, it is dramatic. And he wasn't like this last year. He was uh, I mean, even through most of this year, uh, if he wasn't, like, scintillating on offense, he was still contributing on defense. There's been almost nothing I can point to with Paul Millsap in this playoff series where I think he's doing it, and that leads me to he's still in the starting lineup. Yeah, he's only got 19 minutes the last game, and he didn't play the entire fourth quarter, but uh, he's still, the, he'll still starting, and I think some of that is Malone's just reluctance to, make, to pull the trigger there. I'm a little
1: bit more understanding of it in in a couple different ways. I think it doesn't have anything to come down to whether or not he's lost it. I think it has everything to do with does this group know each other and can Paul Millsap stay out of the way? And, And sometimes they'll run a play for him. It's just does he know and does Jokic know what he's going to do? Does Jamal Murray know what he's going to do? And I think the answer is yes. If you put, say, a Michael Porter in there, he's such a wild card that he might make the great play. But he also might make the wrong play in a way that kills everything else and frustrates the two stars. And you say, okay, well, I don't – you know, I think in the early part of a game it's so important to sort of establish a rhythm. So I think that's it. But going back to Millsap and whether he's lost it, I keep thinking about this, Jeff, and maybe this leads us to – I know we were kind of texting back and forth about this. How many traditional power forwards are left in the NBA? How many big back-to-the-basket, post-up, one-on-one, type players are there and even Paul Millsap as good as he is as a defender what we're seeing of him is that he can't I I I even wonder if he could have done this in his prime you know early years of Atlanta if he could have guarded a Donovan Mitchell pick and roll spread pick and roll like this the league has moved so far away to is he versatile yes you just don't need that versatility anymore the power forward needs to be able to space the floor and guard the pick and roll guard guards and all the other stuff We don't need his post-defense. Denver doesn't need his post-defense on Joe Ingles. Denver doesn't need all of of his other defensive skills. They really just need him to go and chase around fast guards, and sadly, um, that's hard to do. Denver's playing three power forwards for a lot of their games right now against the spread pick and roll team. I think that is why he looks as bad as he does.
0: Well, that's very true. And uh, someone had made. I mean, it, someone had kind of indicated to me that there's. Uh, I think it was you uh, about the the change uh, in the league and where it was going. What you were just pointing out, and whether there is a place in the league for for big guys in general, just just omni, just the big umbrella, for yeah. big guys. Um, and it is very. It's a it's a vexing question because you see effective, very uh, talented, and extremely Uh, you can build around them big guys in the league right now with Embiid and Jokic. However, they are not valued and the league's rules are not exactly uh, favored towards that sort of thing anymore. It's just not been that way for 20 years. So if that is the case, it makes building around that extremely difficult unless you have the most versatile back it down and shoot the three and guard the spread, pick and roll power forward in history.
1: And or center,
0: even. I mean, I'm watching yeah. this with Jokic, and I'm thinking, like,
1: as good as he is defensively, he they just it, you're always going to have a hard time building a great defense around him. I mean, the harsh truth of this series is, okay, if you have Murray, MPJ, and Jokic as your best players, what two defenders can you add to the court that don't kill your offense but also elevate your defense so high? And it's tough. I honestly think it's really tough. There are things that you can do. I don't think Denver's damned by any means. But I think you do look at it and go, wow, that's really hard. You know, Jokic, for as, as talented as he is, one thing is you could outscore him. I do think that there is sort of a – if Denver had Murray, MPJ, and two elite knockdown shooters, just guys you couldn't leave open, you know, but the narrow, narrowly defined roles, but all they do is shoot and, and space the court – I don't think you could stop Denver either no matter how good of a defense you have. In fact, Denver, I think has the third or fourth best offense inside of the playoffs right now. And yeah. they're down three games to two. It's kind of mm-hmm. great. They're scoring at an incredible rate, but can you stop anyone? And the only teams, even Rudy Gobert, by the way, defensive player of the year candidate, two times in a row defensive player of the year. This year, I think he came in second. No, are biting him on fire. So if even Rudy Gobert can't stop anybody, I do wonder if defensively the future of the center position is PJ Tucker and um you know Lou Dort and uh you know Bam Adebayo who's who's I think is maybe the actual sort of like most perfect center for what the league is because he can do a little bit of everything but is that exciting I mean don't we want a little variety don't we want to have a team that's led by Jokic that has a fighting chance and I just think that the NBA's rules about how you defend the pick and roll and how good those guys are I don't know how you guard the pick and roll. I really don't. If you have a player like Steph Curry, Damian Lillard, and Donovan Mitchell, I don't know how you defend them. Because if you play them too tight, it's almost impossible not to foul. And if you play them too loose,
0: they're too good. They can score if you leave them open now in almost any environment. I blame Shaquille O'Neal. That's my, that's my blame because he's, he's the reason they changed the rules. Now, I will say, and this is going to surprise you, I, I will say they needed to do that. They needed to change yeah. the illegal defense and, and it to, took fifteen twenty years for for the league yeah. to figure it out right It didn 't yeah. happen immediately
1: that players yeah. were jacking off the dribble, pull up threes from thirty five feet and nailing them yeah it 's
0: fifteen twenty years we're just we 're there now. they needed to do it they needed to do it because the league was uh, just going into it. I mean, uh, it was Shaq and a bunch of really poor centers is what it was that in that era. And, uh, and, and Tim Duncan, it just really wasn't like, anyway, uh, outside of the history lesson, um, it is what it is. Uh, the only way you can help a center is bringing back hand checking and that's not going to happen. So what they could, what is going to kind of bring us to a head with looking at game six is the Nuggets. I think was it wasn't Matt Moore or you on the podcast that said like it wasn't good defense, but it was, it was hard defense uh, that they were playing at the, down the stretch. And I think that that's true, but you like the energy and uh, sometimes energy is defense and, and, and really most of the is you expend most of your energy on defense. If you're really trying. So some of that is that, can the nuggets duplicate that in, in game six?
1: I think they can play hard. I mean, early in the season, they played hard on defense. That's why they were good. I think Denver can play good defense when they play hard. I just don't know if they can do it for 48 minutes. Yeah. Maybe if they had more healthy bodies and more two-way players, you know, Will Barton and Gary Harris are there. Maybe they can pull this off because then you can give guys a spell or whatever. But playing at that level for 48, I think, just wears you down. And, and that's part of why Denver, with their back against the wall, down I think 10 points with three minutes to go in the third quarter – the defensive intensity ramped up, but that was because they knew they only have 15 minutes to live here. We have to go all out. Yeah. I just don't know if you can do that. But to get back to your other point, which I think is more interesting, when you have, and I know you love this, but how can we get the big man to be more valuable? And I don't just every big man, because I actually happen to think Shaquille O'Neal for as great as he was, that brand of basketball, I think sucks. When a guy's too strong that he just pushes you out of the way and dunks over you. Yeah. Then it just means you need to have one guy like that, like Andre Drummond, the best player in the NBA. No, we don't want that. We want to make some – we want to reward. In my opinion, you want to re- reward all of the various skills in the NBA. But I don't think the NBA cares, and here's why. What are, what's everybody talking about? Damian Lillard, 50-point night after night after night. Yeah. Steph Curry, all of the shooting he does – Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray going to – they love these guards scoring because th- that's what sells. People want to see these guards light it from three and get inside and do all the crazy little moves and crossovers and everything else. I think the NBA loves where the game is at, guard heavy, emphasis on guards. And, unfortunately, from, in my, from my perspective, I would much rather see small forwards that can do a lot of things, power forwards, centers. I would love to see teams that have a bunch of different styles I, just, I worry that this is moving more and more in the direction of guard play is where it's at.
0: The last time center was the most important player on the team was probably the 70s. Uh, and it, really, the NBA has moved away from it over the last 40 years, but what it has done with a lot of the rules changes was to open up, and everything has just been done to open up the lane. Everything has to have space. My issue is the spacing because, to me, the spacing the is unnatural. Uh, then that's why it kind of looks funhouse mirror to me. And that's, that's, that's why when I watch a game, I'm like, there's something about right here. It's too easy to drive the lane. But that's someone who grew up watching basketball in the 90s. Uh, so that's obviously going to affect my perception of the way this looks. I will say that the NBA did not intend for this particular thing, what's going on with the exaggerated spacing and all that. I don't think they intended that. They intended, I, I, with a small history lesson, it was Jerry Colangelo who was the head of the rules committee in 2005. He was the one who really pushed for uh, a lot of the, uh, and I think it was about 2005 where they said, hand-checking, you, this is going to be, we're going to call it every time because there always was a hand-checking rule. They just never enforced it. A lot of that had to do with uh, Jerry Colangelo because he had Steve Nash. He wanted yeah. Steve Nash to have more room. Well, obviously that worked, but what it has done is it has eliminated basically two of the traditional positions in the NBA. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, a center and power forward are gone. To bring it back, I don't know how that can, personally, uh, Kiki Vandewe told me in the bowels of Pepsi Center about six years ago, six or seven years ago, seven, um, that the league conforms to its best players. And that if the center was the best player in the league, the league would conform to the centers. And truth be told, as good as Embiid is and good as Jokic is, uh, they're kind of on an island because you got Rudy Gobert, who's just in the Dikemian Mutombo mold. But outside of that, you don't have guys who can take over a game by themselves. The best players are, like you said, Damian Lillard, uh, James Harden, uh, Steph Curry thompson these guys who can go Donchich already yeah it's not out it's not inside out like the old uh, orlando magic with yeah. dwight howard it's outside sure. in and that yeah. is that is the difference now and i think that that is where i'm seeing it how to bring it back to be honest with you we just need more fucking good uh, uh pardon my language but <laughs> good midnight. Oh, i
1: don't think that i, I I don't think that's it. I really don't really
0: Um, because like I
1: said, Jokic is as talented as any big man we've seen in 20 years. I mean, offensively, he's got every talent. What doesn't he have? He can shoot, he can pass, he can dribble, he can play with the back to the basket. He can face up. He's got all those talents. I don't think we're going to get guys that are meaningfully more dominant there. I think it has to come from the guard spots and some of the rules around how the pick and rolls run. One thing that really bugs me, players go around the pick and roll and then stop on a dime and jump sort of sideways and get that foul, right? If you're trailing somebody around a pick and roll and they stop and go up, well, that's a foul, but it's not a shot. Nobody practices shooting sideways or stopping on a dime without fully going around. So to me, it's a dishonest move in that you're really only any time there's a penalty or a foul where the purpose of the move was to draw the foul. I want, I think the league needs to take action. So stop changing the way that we call fouls when a player is trailing, I think that's a huge, huge piece of this because the pull-up three-pointer is the thing that's breaking everything. You remember five years ago, Steph Curry was hitting pull-up threes and everybody thought, wow, he's the only one. Everybody else is catch-and-shoot threes. Nobody shoots pull-up. Well, now everybody shoots pull-up and they do them really well. Donovan Mitchell's shooting 55% inside the bubble right now on pull-up three-pointers. If everybody can do this, how do you guard it when it's also a foul if you guard them too closely? I just think that you need to change those rules. And then think about this, Jeff. Jokic is a finesse player. Yeah. If you touch Damian Lillard around the perimeter as he goes into a shooting motion, it's a foul 100% of the time, even if it's just the lightest touch. If you're banging in the post and a player goes for a jump hook and there's a little body contact, is that a foul? No. But why? It's a, it's a finesse move. It takes skill. It takes touch. And if you mess with that touch, it, so I just think that the way that they officiate and try to weed out some of those calls that make it impossible to defend the pick and roll. Maybe defenders can put their hands on the screener, meaning the defensive players screener can already kind of lean left or right. They can kind of do all this different stuff to gain an advantage, allow the person to be able to put one arm on the body to kind of navigate the screen, to try to even this out so that you don't just have to run pick and rolls and Jack threes to to run an efficient.
0: Offense. Let, let, let me, let me, let me tell you something. And you're speaking my language here. Um, I spoke to Ralph Simpson, former Nuggets great, Ralph Simpson and uh, Spencer Haywood, And both of them said something very interesting to me. Uh, it was the night the Nuggets had their 50th anniversary, which was really their 51st season. And they they did, they, <laughs> they, they uh, both told me the same thing, and it was eerie because they didn't know, both of them did not know that they had told me this to, at the time, uh, at least they, each other they didn't know. And they said that eliminating the hand check actually gave, put all the benefit of the doubt on the offensive player. So the defender on the perimeter is completely at a disadvantage. The only person who can successfully draw to uh, defend a perimeter player without fouling is Kawhi Leonard that I've seen. Uh, And he's got quick hands and that that's ungodly quick hands that he has. Um, and that's really what it is. The only way to guard that pick and roll, as what you just desc- just described to me, is a hand check. Well, Keep in your hand. Yeah, up.
1: I mean, well, it's a, it's a I think a little bit of that, but it's also a lot of just not letting those players do offensive moves that are designed only to draw a foul, not to score. So, I think the league's got to do something. I don't think they want to though, because again, I. Th- think if you told the league they could have every team has a Damian Lillard or Steph Curry type player on the roster they would say sweet we love it that's what we want and uh, unfortunately allowing some of these rules and with how talented players are and let's be honest a lot of this has to do Jeff with NBA players are too good these days it used to be that you had one player that could knock down standstill three-pointers and one player that could dribble you had one that could rebound you know you had guys that were a little more compartmentalized when you have a team where any player on the court or at least four of the players on the court are absolutely deadly from three-point range, it's tougher to guard. When you have four guys that can all run a pick-and-roll like John Stockton or Steve Nash and get something out of it, at least to some degree, it makes it impossible to guard. These guys are too good. They're shooting the three at too high of a clip that it's just so much harder to guard anywhere along the court because you're
0: so stretched out. You're absolutely right there. Okay, right before I let you go, and thank you for this conversation, Adam, because I I, – Fun. We got mind. old together, yeah. We, um, we all get old. <laughs> we all get old, and then we're like, yeah, and these kids, <laughs> damn, these young kids. Before I let you go, uh, Game Six, what do you think? What do you, what do you think?
1: Man, I, I think it, I, I had a lot of confidence in Denver after Game Five to just make it a coin flip game. I think these two teams are even as currently constructed. So I yeah. would have said coin flip game. I'll go Denver, whatever. But having this layoff. I mean, it, to me, it just makes this game like anything else. I, it, it's just so random. Where's everybody's head at? Um, so I have a worse feeling about it. I would probably say Utah, but,
0: you know, we'll see. I've got Denver, and I've got Denver winning in seven. So, I, Oh, I,
1: Jeff, feeling it.
0: Yes. Yeah, so, uh, obviously, everyone listening to this, feel free to, uh, tech, to uh, tweet me at jmorton78. Uh, if I am wrong, I will take the punishment. So, uh, uh, all right, Adam. Thank you for joining me your first time on the Mortcast, cast, but first time on CSG since 2015. Uh, I appreciate wow. you joining me. It's been great. Thanks for having me, buddy. It's good to see you. See you, man.